Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. In the NOCO is supported by Blue Federal Credit Union, with locations from Denver to Cheyenne, helping members tap into the power of community. More information at bluefcu.com. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. It's Friday, September 2nd. This week, the Veterans Community Project of Longmont launched a brand new mobile outreach unit. The van will connect veterans experiencing homelessness in rural parts of northern Colorado with resources like transportation and temporary housing. KUNC's Bo Baker spoke to the project's executive director, Jennifer Siebold, about the mobile unit and efforts to aid unhoused veterans in our region. Jennifer, the Veterans Community Project started in Kansas City as a village of almost 50 tiny homes for veterans experiencing homelessness. Can you tell me how the organization made its way to Longmont? We really have been operating here since 2020. There was a group of individuals here in Longmont tasked with looking at veteran homelessness in our community. What are the ways that we might go about solving that? Kevin Molshine, he's the developer and owns HMS Development, was tasked with sort of looking at other community models. So he visited Kansas City and said, I want to bring this to Longmont. Uh, The really cool thing is Kevin put his money where his mouth is. He donated the land for our project um, and worked with the city really closely. So he gave us a little more than two acres to build our tiny homes on here in Longmont. Our village is not complete yet and construction's underway, but we've been serving veterans in the community since that time through our outreach center on Main Street. And we've been able to help more than 300 veterans in our community already and permanently house 40, even though we don't have a village yet. So the work of our case managers is already having a pretty significant impact in our community. So the tiny homes in Longmont are currently underway, but this week you launched this mobile outreach program that includes a fully ADA-accessible van. What will this provide to unhoused veterans? Yeah, this is a really exciting project. A lot of services are just really centralized in large city spaces. And so, you know, when you're in that area, there's a lot more access, but many of our veterans don't live in those communities. They live in much more rural spaces. They often don't have transportation to get to even doctor's appointments or other things like that. And so it's just tremendously important to come to where the need is because a lot of people cannot come to where we are. The van will be starting out in both Mountain and Plains communities like Gilpin, Boulder, Clear Creek, and Weld counties. What will the mobile unit offer? We see veterans from all over northern Colorado, and because we're so spread out, sometimes it can be hard for folks to get to where we are. So this allows us to go to them. Um, We can get somebody onboarded for support right in the moment. We can get them signed up to have some contact with a case manager or One of the things our case managers do best is just connect people to services that are close to them. So making sure we're doing like a really soft handoff of that, getting an idea of what that person needs. We're also, you know, carrying around supplies like food and winter supplies, basic things that will change seasonally depending on the needs, but gives us a chance to reach people who one may not know that we exist and two just maybe too far to to come into the outreach center. It sounds like it really does a little bit of everything. 
So this mobile unit is paid for by a two-year grant that came out of last year's state legislative session. It took some work to get rolling, including setting up a partnership between the Veterans Community Project and the Colorado Department of Local Affairs. In your experience, how difficult is it to get funding for services for veterans in need? This is an interesting question, and, and I probably should say that we're also a little bit unique in the way that we define veteran. We do not look at someone's length of service or type of duty, and we do not care about their discharge status. That's a little bit different than some other organizations. It's certainly different than the eligibility requirements for VA services. So that makes our fundraising a little bit added challenging um, just because we we don't necessarily take federal funding if there are any strings attached to it. We, you know, we are getting more state support and I'm, I'm really excited to see that states are kind of minimizing the restrictions, but we want to make sure all the funding we're taking doesn't prevent us from serving any veteran who walks in the door regardless of their discharge status. I think a lot of people don't necessarily know that many of our veterans are not getting supportive services from VA and other government agencies. I think there's a little bit of a misconception of who's eligible for those services. There's an estimate that more than 500,000 veterans are living with an other than honorable discharge status, which means they would not be eligible for those kinds of services, which makes programs like ours essential. And we really rely on public support for that. That was Jennifer Siebold, the Executive Director of Veterans Community Project of Longmont, speaking with KUNC's Bo Baker. You can find this story and more Northern Colorado news at KUNC.org. In parts of our region, it's not unusual for a bear to wander into a neighborhood, especially as we head into fall and that can be dangerous for the residents and bears. The Mountain West News Bureau's Milwaukee reports on a community looking to reduce these encounters. It's delivery day at the National Elk Refuge near Jackson, Wyoming. A semi-truck packed with hundreds of bear-resistant trash cans is being unloaded. Let's look at one that's not dented. Drew Gath shows me how to use one. It's a thick black box with a locking lid and notches even the most nimble paws couldn't break into. Uh, they're tested up at the Wilderness Refuge in Montana where they have grizzlies and wolves and they fill these with fish meal, rotten meat, anything bears really want to get into, and I let them hammer on these for an hour or two. A saying around here is a fed bear is a dead bear. They're opportunistic, omnivorous, and not picky. Gath works for a nonprofit called Jackson Hole Bear Solutions. He says if a grizzly or black bear finds an open dumpster or livestock feed or even a bird feeder, they'll get bad habits. They have a really good memory, really good sense of direction, and if they get a food reward... Then that's a dangerous situation. Last fall, arguably the most famous bear in the world, Grizzly 399, called the Queen of the Tetons, went viral when she waltzed right through downtown Jackson with her four cubs. Local photographer Ann Smith found a massive paw print the next morning outside her house, just a five-minute drive from the antler arches in Jackson's town square. I'm pretty sure what they did was climb the fence through the next-door neighbor's yard and then over my fence and then by the garage. That bear family was eventually escorted out of town by police. High-profile cases also made headlines this year around the West. A 500-pound black bear called Hank the Tank broke into several homes near Lake Tahoe. Another black bear was relocated to the wilderness after it got into trash and bird feeders north of Boulder, Colorado. 
Dan Thompson heads the large carnivore section of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. He says food-conditioned bears become increasingly bold. They start doing things, pushing people out of hammocks, taking food literally from people in their backpack, holding it. We don't have a lot of options if it gets to that. One of 399's young cubs was killed earlier this summer south of Teton County because it was hanging around homes. Someone spotted the bear getting into a refrigerator on a porch, and a man opened his screen door right into the animal's rear end. Conflicts that bears have with people and livestock have risen by more than 30% in the past decade in Wyoming. Thompson says that more people are living or recreating near public lands. Plus, bears are actually expanding their territory. People use the term coexist all the time. Well, the reality of that is there's going to be conflicts. There's going to be negative things that happen to people and negative things that happen to bears if you're going to have a high density of both in the landscape. That's why officials passed a law this year mandating people in some parts of Teton County to secure their trash, removing the number one cause of human bear friction. Other communities like Durango, Colorado and West Yellowstone, Montana, already have restrictions like this. Kristen Combs is executive director of Wyoming Wildlife Advocates and helps run Jackson Hole Bear Solutions. She says ecosystems need big predators. You know, a lot of times this place looks like a wildlife paradise, but then you scratch a little deeper beneath the surface and you find out that like, oh, things, things could be healthier, things could be better. There's still a long way to go. These new laws need to be enforced, and an estimated 3,500 cans need to be distributed. But Ann Smith says most longtime locals are willing to devote time and energy to keep more humans and bears safe, especially as Grizzly 399 and her cubs continue to interact with humans. She's been an outstanding mother and guarded her cubs fiercely from predators. And when she crosses the road with them, she's always looked both ways. She really has brought attention to the plight of why we need to save these iconic bears. That will be a challenge over the next few months. Bears are entering what's called hyperphagia, eating tens of thousands of calories a day to stock up for hibernation. So tourists and residents should be aware that the fall is when conflicts are most likely. For the Mountain West News Bureau, I'm Will Walkie in Jackson, Wyoming. KUNC is a member of the Mountain West News Bureau, a regional reporting collaboration. You can find more stories at KUNC.org. Last week, President Biden announced a sweeping student loan forgiveness plan that would erase up to $20,000 of debt for many borrowers. To learn more about how this debt forgiveness plan will impact Coloradans, we spoke with Jason Gonzalez from Chalkbeat, Colorado. He reports on higher education and has been covering the student debt crisis. Jason, good to have you here. Thank you for having me on. Jason, can you recap for us the details of Biden's announcement? Yeah, so like you said, it's going to be $10,000 in student loan debt relief for people that earn less than $125,000 a year. Um, and less than 250000 for joint filers. Uh, the administration will also cancel another additional 10000 for graduates who had Pell Grants or were low income at the time. And it's expected that about 43 million borrowers nationwide will likely benefit from this, although it's unclear at this point how the Biden administration is going to roll this out um, and make this uh, accessible for student loan borrowers. 
Here in Colorado, it's estimated that more than 770,000 residents have student loan debt, totaling about $29 billion. You reported for Chalkbeat on how crippling student debt can be for people of all ages and backgrounds in our state. What have you been hearing this week from people in response to the debt relief plan? Uh, for some students, it's going to be life-changing. For some students, it's going to be a drop in the bucket. You know, there are students out there who might have less than $20,000 of student loan debt. And, and, you know, this means that they can now think about um, long-term savings, buying a house, or just, you know, even the mental health aspect of, of having that debt hang over your head for years when you've been trying to pay that off. But I've also talked to Coloradans who have $150,000, dollars uh, debt, and that's not a case of irresponsibility on their part. They might have come from backgrounds where they needed more to get through college. They, they maybe couldn't work during that time. Um, they might have had to support family. So for those that have that high of debt, um, this, this really isn't going to help them that much. You've been reporting on how student loan debt and loan forgiveness can impact borrowers of color differently than white borrowers. Can you tell me a little more? Student loan borrowers who are Black and Hispanic have higher overall debt uh, averages than those are white. So this doesn't go as far for some of those students who are Black and, and Hispanic. And although the Biden administration has really talked about equity and providing relief, and that's why those Pell Grant recipients are going to get more money overall, um, this doesn't really get into how much some of those students might have, um, especially when they've taken out more overall to get through and finish college. You cited a statistic in an article last week that said half of all Colorado students graduating college in 2020 held debt. What are some of the factors that are keeping this student debt crisis going? At one point, Colorado was paying about 70% of all costs uh, for students. And now it's shifted to where students are paying about 70% of the costs for um, higher education overall. So that's really, the burden is more on the student than it's ever been. And the, the question is, how is the Biden administration going to invest in those colleges that serve Black students and Hispanic students? Um, but also how are states and how are state lawmakers going to really look at how they can reinvest into higher education so the cost uh, goes down for students overall. And until we get to that point where um, the state takes more of, of the burden once again, we're likely going to be having this uh, conversation into the future. Thanks so much for coming on, Jason. It was great to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me and I always appreciate being here. That was Jason Gonzalez of Chalkbeat Colorado. You can find his reporting and much more at chalkbeat.org and you can find more Northern Colorado news at kunc.org. The Colorado Dream Podcast from KUNC shares the stories of Coloradans who are overcoming obstacles to create a better life for themselves and their families in an effort to achieve the American dream. 
Hosted by Stephanie Daniel, the latest season, called Newcomers Welcome, explores the black immigrant experience in Colorado as told through the eyes of one African immigrant and Aurora as the city and its residents strive to become an inclusive home for all. In this bonus episode, Stephanie profiles an Ethiopian immigrant who loves to share a piece of her culture with others. Aurora is home to immigrants and refugees from around the world. To help them succeed, the city created an ambitious integration plan that focuses heavily on supporting foreign-born entrepreneurs. And for good reason, immigrants and refugees have higher rates of starting new businesses than American-born residents. Throughout the city, there are immigrant-owned businesses like food markets, restaurants, beauty salons, and transportation companies. Aurora, it's, it's welcoming. And if you are comfortable, you achieve. Ayala Chimakel came to the U.S. to go to college in 1995 and then moved to Aurora five years later. First impression, you see somebody who looked like you, you will be comfortable. I think that's why Aurora is a lot of entrepreneurs. Ayu, as everyone calls her, is one of these entrepreneurs. She's owned a liquor store and a home health agency. Now she works as an interpreter for medical and law offices, schools, and the community. She interprets two Ethiopian languages, Amharic and Tigrinya. Ayu also performs Ethiopian coffee ceremonies. She recently invited me to one. So this is the coffee before it is roasted. I don't know if you know coffee before it's roasted, and this is what it looks like, kind of pale green and I'm roasting it right now. Ayu and I are seated on chairs in her living room. She is wearing a traditional yellow gold dress with white accents, a white head wrap, and large gold earrings in the shape of two intersecting arcs. There is incense burning. On the ground is an ornate wooden box with a set of white and cream-colored coffee cups, saucers, a sugar bowl, and spoons. As the beans roast in a small pot on a portable electric burner, Ayu tells me about the origin of coffee. It was in 850 AD, um, found by goat herder, his name is Kaldi, in the Providence at that time in uh, Kaffa. The Kaffa province was on the southwestern side of Ethiopia, and according to legend, Kaldi's goats ate some cherry-like fruits from a coffee tree and got so energized, they couldn't sleep. So he tried the fruit, which contains a seed, the coffee bean. Kaldi shared his discovery with a local monastery and the abbot brewed a drink that helped him stay alert during evening prayers. From there, the popularity of coffee spread. And then brought the coffee beans to Arab country, and then the Arab country to Europe, and then the New World. After the roasting is done, she places the beans on a flat woven grass mat that looks like a placemat to cool. A snack is usually served with the coffee. She likes to make popcorn. Once it's done, she'll put the popcorn to the side for later. So while it's doing that, I am going to grind the coffee. Then she mixes the grinds with cold water and pours the coffee into a special pot to brew. This is a pot made out of clay, and then 
this is how we make our coffee with this. Do you like it strong, your coffee? Um, I like it pretty strong. Really? Okay. IU is a member of Aurora Sister Cities International, which promotes local and global partnerships. There are five sister cities, including Adama, Ethiopia. It was chosen because the cities are similar in size, ethnic and religious diversity, geography, and industries. IU was part of a local delegation that visited Adama in 2015. That's how I start serving the coffee to show my culture to other very diverse Aurora. She conducts these coffee ceremonies at events around the city, including the annual Global Fest. This is how it is until it's brew, and it might take a minute so we could have lunch. That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. IU serves me a traditional Ethiopian lunch of beef tips, shuro, a thick chickpea stew, and salad. She also serves injera, a spongy sour flatbread that's used to scoop up the food. She places the dishes on the dining table and shows me how to eat using the injera. Do this from the plate, and then you dip it and roll, and how, however big you want it. So, yeah. yeah. Perfect. Enjoy. Thank you. After lunch, we return to the coffee ceremony, and finally, the coffee is ready. Would you like sugar? That's a little bit of sugar. Just a little? Yeah. Okay. I like a lot. (laughs) (laughs) As we sip the strong brew, I munch on popcorn. If I, you and I had been in Ethiopia, we might have been drinking coffee from this pot all day long. One coffee ceremony has three steps. The first one, strong, and then after that's done, I'll pour water, put it again. That's the second and then we drink that, and then there's the third one, three. Some people even make it four in one coffee ceremony. This is like my dream meal. Good. Coffee and popcorn. (laughs) (laughs) That was KUNC Senior Managing Editor and Reporter Stephanie Daniel. She's the host of the Colorado Dream Podcast from KUNC. Listen to all the episodes of Season 2, Newcomers Welcome, at KUNC.org or wherever you get your podcasts. That's all for today on Colorado Edition. You can catch the Colorado Edition podcast every Friday, so please hit that subscribe button if you haven't already. If there's a story you'd like to hear us cover on Colorado Edition, send us an email at coloradoedition at KUNC.org. Our theme music is composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Other music in the show by Budot Sessions. I'm Jocelyn Mesa Miranda. Thank you for spending some time with KUNC's Colorado Edition. Have a good Labor Day weekend and see you on Wednesday for a special episode. <laughs>